Before we get into God's word, I want to share my heart for just a second before I share God's heart. And uh, the last few weeks have been amazing. Actually, the last few months um, in your pastor's life as I've pondered life, as I've thought about the richness of life, thought about all the experiences we have growing up and having children and grandchildren now and parents and all those things too. And, you know, I saw the home going of my father back in February. Done a number of funerals since then and saw families as they said goodbye to a precious loved one. That's part of life. Been to the hospital with a number of our folks too and seen their brand new baby and got to spend all day at the hospital to see my, meet my little grandson too. So how precious that is, but also... Just the experiences of life, how rich life is and how rich life is supposed to be when we have Jesus Christ right in the center of it. And uh, I'm preaching a pretty powerful scripture today. It comes out of Acts 19. If you want to start turning there, you can, but I'm going to share several thoughts before then. But the church is God's precious family. I don't want you to miss that thought. The church isn't a building, even though God's provided a very special building, a very special piece of property here for us, but... The church is the body. It's the believers. It's the people that go there. And God intended for this family to be rich as well. So we have rich experiences together and we experience great victories together, but we also stand and lock arms with each other in the, in the hard times and sometimes the things that are just too hard to get through on our own, but we've got a body of believers that surround us with. The church is God's family. Don't miss that. The other thing is that God created the church, his body of believers, for a very special reason. Two of the primary reasons, the paramount reasons for the church today, and always from the very beginning back in Acts, what we're looking at today is first and foremost evangelism, to grow our family, to share with others how precious a family we have here and invite them to come join us in and be part of this body of believers and be part of what God's doing here and come to know God and grow together in our relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Evangelism is huge. The other part of the church mission and the, uh, the church purpose is edification. That means to build up, to encourage and build each other up, to, to build disciples and help each, other, uh, each of us grow in our faith and encourage each other to grow in our faith and come to understand everything that God has for us and come to be all that God wants us to be, the reason that Jesus Christ saved us. What is that? What is that really all about? What are we supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ? The church is here to help us understand that and to edify us and build us up to be that. I was a little hard in the first service, and I don't know if I should be, say it's hard, but I believe part of the problem, you guys know this from my mouth, that I believe the biggest problem in America today is the church because we haven't been the church we're supposed to be. We haven't been evangelizing. We haven't been edifying and those sort of things. And I don't want to paint a negative picture here about this church, but there's so much more we can do. I told the first service as well, and I'll tell you, I've never known a greater church than this. I've been going to church my whole life. I've been here 14 years, but all those years before I've gone to every church, I've been to a million churches. I've seen a lot of churches. I know different pastors. And uh, this body of believers gets it. We really do. We understand those things, but we're not all the way where we need to be. We have so much more to do in the realm of evangelism, so much more to do in the realm of edifying and encouraging each other. I've told you over and over, I believe the most encouraging body we should have is our families in this church. When I come to church, I do get encouraged. I do get edified. I get built up by hearing your stories and what God's doing in your life. And I know you do the same and talking to your friends and going to Sunday school and these sort of things. But we have so much more to do. 
I want to set the stage for the scripture we're going to read here today. If you remember last week, we were in Corinth, in the scripture there in Acts 18. Corinth, a very wicked city, but Paul did a marvelous work there. He got a group of individuals together that came to know the Lord, and he set up a church there. He built a significant church there. It was time for him to move on on his missionary journey, though. I want you to think about this. Paul was traveling all over Asia Minor and all over Europe to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it came time for him to leave Corinth. If you remember, when he was in Corinth, he made two new friends, Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. Go figure. Paul was a tent maker too, so he got to work with them. So he became good friends with them, but they also grew in their faith a long way. So when Paul got ready to leave Corinth, you know what he did? He took Aquila and Priscilla with him because they're going to be good ambassadors and great partners in the ministry. Well, he left Corinth and he went to Ephesus. He was only there for a small time, but he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. And he charged them with building a church there. So Paul finished his, mission, his second missionary trip, returned back to Jerusalem, was there for about six months, and then he decided it's time to go back out. I'm not staying around here long because I'm going back out. And so the very first place he stopped at for any prolonged period of time on his third missionary trip was back at Ephesus. He showed up in Ephesus, and he right away realized there's a problem here, not with Priscilla and Aquila, but he realized that too many people did not have, listen to this, a genuine salvation. We're going to read about that in just a moment. He looked at them and, and, and he realized there was a major lacking in their faith. There were Jews that were baptized by the baptism of John. They're talking about the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing prior to Jesus' coming that you repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. But they had not been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and had not received the Holy Spirit. And so there was a problem in the church at Ephesus. Paul saw their plight. They had no power, and they had no life. I want you to ponder for just a second here the, the setting of most churches, too many churches in America today. There's no power, and there's no life. There's too many churches doing only what they can do. Too many churches inward focused, and they're not looking out. They're not evangelizing and edifying. They're all about themselves. There's too many churches also doing things that they can do in their own power and not in the power of God. You know, I've, I've shared with you before, but... We do some of those things here, things that we can do in our own power. But you know what this church is supposed to be about? And we've been about that. We've been about doing things here in this church, and I praise God for that, that if God did not show up, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to go. It, we weren't going to see it happen. So I want to have God's vision and realize that we can't do this vision without God. Let me give you one example. Many of you know this. You were here. Back in 2008, God put it upon our heart to do the one-touch ministry. We struggled for years since I came to this church to get 10 people to come out on visitation on Monday night. They just didn't want something most people want to do. They had busy lives and didn't do it. So all of a sudden, God put it on our heart. And I'll tell you what, how God put it on our heart. There's two things that I began thinking about. Imagine if somebody lives in a 10-mile radius of this church. They lived there for 10 or 20 years, as long as this church had been here. We've been here 17 years now. Been here all those years, and nobody from Beaverdam Baptist Church ever came by and knocked on the dirt door and said, hey, why don't you come to church? Would you like to come to church? Do you have a church family? The other thing I thought about was the fact that what do people really think about Beaverdam Baptist Church that don't go to this church? What do those people especially think about when they think about Beaverdam Baptist Church that don't go to any church? What do they think about that? And a harder question along that line is, imagine for just a moment if Beaverdam Baptist Church disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow. We were gone. Poof. The church was gone. Would anybody miss us? Those two thoughts began just haunting my heart. I didn't want to be a church that didn't reach out. I didn't want to be a church that 
basically ignored the idea of going and knocking on somebody's door and inviting them. So we began talking about it, we began training about it, we began preaching about it, and the whole church began to get a focus that on the first Wednesday night in June, we'd all come out and we'd go out and knock on 9,274 homes. You know what happened on the first Wednesday night in June of 2008? This is such a God thing. 260 people showed up to go out visiting. 260. I mean, I just told you, I used to die to get 10 people to go out. 260 people came out excited. Many of them a little nervous. You know, I don't know if I can do this. You know how they came back after that night? Man, I'm so glad I did it. Pastor, let me tell you about this. I'll tell you about this. They stood up here. I had testimonies. They were telling us all these things about, oh, it was unbelievable. And then the neatest thing happened. I had people come. These little church mice, little ladies that, you know, come to bashful and shy. You never expect them to knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I'm here to invite you to church. I had ladies and, and men come to me and say, you know what, Pastor? I shared the gospel with my boss today at work, and he accepted Jesus Christ. I would have never done that if we hadn't been challenged to go out and knock on doors. We're talking today, and we're going to look at the scripture here, about growing and prevailing. That's the essence of the church. We're to evangelize and to edify, but we're also to grow, continue to grow in our faith. That's edifying, building people up. But we're also to evangelize and go. Paul did that. Paul encountered a church here that had a lot of problems. And you'll notice the similarities in just a minute with the American church today. Paul was planting the Word of God. You have to plant the Word of God before you can grow it. So if you found your way to Acts 19, stand with me, if you will, this morning out of reverence and respect to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 19. Verse 1, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about, the men were about twelve in all. And when they came into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when someone hardened, some were hardened and did not believe, they spoke evil of the way before the way. You know what that is? They're referencing Jesus Christ there. That's a slang term for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They began calling Jesus Christ and his ministries the way. Before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Greeks. Now drop down to verse 20. This is what happened after Paul came there. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, speak to our hearts this day, Father, that we might really understand, Father, your church. We understand our part in the church, Father. We understand what the church is to be about, Father. And more than anything, Father, we would be committed in a greater way today, surrendered in a greater way today, to see your will be done on this earth, Father, that we'd see heaven come down to earth. Father, we thank you now for each person here. Father, I thank you for the privilege I have to serve alongside him. Father, thank you for all the precious family we have here in our church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, these verses we read is one of the great lessons in all the Bible about salvation. 
Paul is realizing there's a disconnect between people thinking they have religion, people thinking they have Jesus Christ, and, and not having him. They didn't realize. remember going to Nicaragua years ago, the first time I went down there and left there thinking, you know, these folks don't know what they don't have. They lived in absolute poverty. I, I was embarrassed to come home and realize what God had blessed me with and see what they lived in down there. They didn't know what they didn't have. That was the case here with the early Christians, so to speak, quote-unquote Christians, the Jews that had converted. They'd converted in the name of John the Baptist and not in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they're missing all the power and the relationship that you have. But there's three huge significant thoughts here in the essence of these first nine verses that talk about salvation. Let me share them very quickly this morning. Salvation necessitates a full belief and receiving in the Holy Spirit. What do you mean belief? Well, Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you can be saved. There's all kinds of parts of that thing. Do I really believe with all my heart? I believe one of the biggest stumbling blocks for the, for the, the brand new Christian is the, is the last part of the sentence. If you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you can be saved. Do I believe, first of all, do I need saving? You know, the Jews had a big problem when Jesus Christ came here. They, of all people, should have understood the Scripture. They should have realized that, hey, this, this guy has fulfilled all the prophecy. This is the Messiah. They should have known it, but they didn't. Why didn't they need it? Because they were a privileged class. They were God's chosen generation. They, hey, I'm a Hebrew. You know, I've been circumcised. I don't need saving. I don't need to be saved. Well, what's the problem in America today? There's a lot of people out there really, what do you mean saved? I'm fine. I've got to own a big house. I have a big job. I have all these things. Why do I need to be saved? Well, they have a hard time coming to the understanding that they're sinners. We're all sinners. I don't care how much money you have, you're still a sinner. I don't care how righteous you walk, you're still a sinner. They didn't realize, they didn't believe with all the heart. Salvation necessitates full belief. Belief that I need salvation. The, probably the biggest disconnect, too, in the whole essence of people getting saved. And I, I want you to just ponder in your own life. Well, you've come to believe in all these things, and did you believe it from day one, or you've come to understand it now, and that's fine, that's perfect. But we need to repent. What does that mean? That means I'm walking this way in my life. I'm walking in the world this way. I need to come to a brick wall and realize I no longer want to go that way. It's not enough to turn 90 degrees. I'm going to improve some things. I'm going to do something better, turn this way. And that's what happens a lot to a lot of us. We say, well, I'll make these changes, but, you know, I'm not going to turn all the way around. But Jesus Christ is asking us, to stop living our own life and start living his life, walking this way. Surrender everything. I'm surrendered to him. God, what do you want me to do? God, what do I need to do? But also as we're walking this way, and it's a process, it's a, a continual lifelong process to surrender, God, what is it in my life right now that I have not surrendered? Is there something in me that I'm holding on to that's keeping me from receiving the fullness of your grace? We want it all. Why wouldn't you want everything that God has for you? Why wouldn't we want Jesus Christ in its entirety? We meet, Je we meet Jesus Christ and we realize he wants to forgive our sins. But am I really willing to surrender everything to him? That's what he's looking for. God doesn't want to be a part-time renter in our lives. He doesn't want to be a, a leasee of your life. He wants to be the owner. The second thought here about salvation. Salvation necessitates a decision. There needs to be a time in your life when you make that decision and say, I want Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I want him to come live inside me. I want to surrender my life and give it to him. It's not enough to know about it. It's not enough to go to church for years and sit there and understand all Scripture. It's not even enough to memorize half the Bible. 
If you don't come to that point in your life and you say, Jesus, I need you and I want you, please come in. Then you don't have Jesus Christ. You need to have a time in your life when you invite him to come. He's waiting. It's a free gift. It's just like if I handed you this Bible as a gift. You can take it or leave it. Jesus Christ is saying, I want you to take this. So you need to reach out your hand, reach out your heart and say, I want it. And take it. And claim it for yourself. A lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people struggle with the whole idea of salvation. And in 19... No, I'm sorry, it was in 2000. I was going to say 99. In 2000, I was a pastor, an associate pastor at Grove Avenue Baptist Church. And in January 2000, the senior pastor preached two sermons, one of them on TV said a little prayer and walked out and was never seen again in Grove Avenue Baptist Church. Nobody knew he was leaving. I didn't know he was leaving. After the service, he told the church he was resigning that day. I walked upstairs and he, uh, his office was empty. He came over the weekend and packed that office up. A couple of deacons called a real quick meeting afterwards and asked Pastor Jeff Brower, Pastor Wins and I, we were both there together, come down and they wanted us to run the church. And um, So that was a, obviously a, a daunting task. We were right in the middle of a $9.5 million dollar building program, and um, Jeff and I realized we, we needed to kind of claim God very quickly, claim his word. So we invited a guy by the name of Stan Bailey um, Smith, Bailey Smith to come as an evangelist for our church, and he's a renowned, world-renowned evangelist and great mighty God. He told me on the phone when I was talking to him, I don't really usually come to churches, I don't have a senior pastor, but it sounds like you guys could use maybe what I, I, I bring, and so he came. And I'm telling you all this to say this. He had a revival. There was a Saturday night service, a Sunday morning, and a Sunday night service. Three services there. And uh, during those three services, we saw 86 people get saved in just a day and a half there. And the reason I tell you part of that is because six deacons got saved. A couple of Sunday school teachers got saved. All kinds of people got saved. Because they'd never come to a point when they really made that decision. They knew all about him. They'd studied him, taught him, serving as deacons in a church, faithful members. But they realized in their heart of hearts, you know, there had never been that time in my life when I said, I want Jesus Christ. Decide to have Jesus Christ. A lot of people, I believe, sit in the pews today and they're kind of wondering, do I really have them? Well, they're afraid maybe they'll be embarrassed if I get up. You know, I've been coming to this church now for 20 years and 17 years, whatever it might be. I don't want people to think badly of me. Let me tell you this. I preach every Sunday for an audience of one, him. I'm thankful you're here to hear it too, but my heart's desire is to please him first. In your life and your decisions, you know who you need to put first in making that decision? Him. Make sure that what you're doing is going to please him. I will tell you this about this church. Anytime somebody walks forward, you know the people in the, in the pews here, they're rejoicing. They don't know what it's about. You could be praying for a need or be surrendering your life, what it might be. But this church has come to a point when they rejoice to see people answering the invitation. They rejoice when people say, they just, man, that person just heard from God. They're making a decision right now. You know, God, speak to me that way. This church loves it when people make decisions. So I don't want you letting anything hold you back. What God is telling you to do, you do it. When God's knocking at your door, I believe, I tell you every Sunday about something. It may not be worthy of walking forward, but it may be. Whatever it might be, God wants to do it. But you need to make that decision. Question for you and I today is, what are you doing with Jesus Christ? The third thought about salvation, salvation necessitates protection and growth of the new believer. 
We understand the growth. Second Peter 3.18 says this, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Growing is the essence of life. We're not going to have the Christian life if we're not growing. We're babies in Christ when we get saved. We're on milk and we need to move over to meat as babies in Christ. Growing is the essence of life. Imagine the, just the part of the possibility to grow. God wants us to grow. God takes us just as we are but has no desire to leave us that way. Wants us to grow. There's a peril, though, when we don't grow. What is that peril? Of falling backwards. If we're not moving forward and growing our faith, you know what we're doing? We're going backwards. We need to avail ourselves to grow. Church is one of those things. Worship is one of those things. Sunday school is another. Bible studies during the week. Getting in your Bible every day. Talking to God. The question for you and I today is, though, as I look at my life, am I in the same position today as I was a year ago as a, as a Christian? Where have I grown? Have I seen substantial growth? We should be able to see it weekly, monthly, daily. Realize the moments when God teaches you or shows you something in His Holy Word. I learned something today about people. And I, it didn't come from me. God taught me that about people. Whatever it might be. You know, your lifespan, if you live 70 years, is 25,550 days. That's how long you're going to live. That's how many days you got. That's a lot of days, isn't it? Well, I'm here to tell you, as you ponder and get over 50 years old, there's not as many days left. Okay? So we need to ponder those things. We all know that we're going to die one day. Right? I share that every time I do a funeral. There will be a day when every one of us is lying in state, just like this precious saint right here. Not one day. The thought about all that is, so whatever you want to do in your life, you need to get on with it. Whatever you want to do in your life, you need to get on with it. Man, I want to study God's Word more. I want to get more engaged. I want to do this or want to do these things with my kids. You know, we live in a world of second chances too many times. We live in a world that I can put it off till tomorrow. Hey, Dad, can we go out and do this? Or, hey, honey, want to do this? Or do that? Yeah, we'll do that, but let's get back to it. We'll do it sometime later, okay? Later may never come. There may never be later, especially in our faith. Why put off till tomorrow what we think we can do today? That we should do today. What truly makes a difference in our lives? What truly makes a difference? It's growing in the Lord. It's having the Lord. I shared that right at the front. I don't take any credit for what my family is all about today. I give that all to God. I tried to stay out of his way. I brought him into the home, taught him as much as I could, showed him the examples, taught life skills based on God's holy word, all these things, but it was all God. You know, God was building an incredible church here in Ephesus, a great church. God wanted that great church, and you know who he's going to use? Paul. Paul and Aquila and Priscilla and those that were disciples around Paul. Paul preached the word of God, and the fire came down. Lives were changed. We're going to look at those things now. Do you have your Bible so open to Acts 19? We're going to look at some of the verses we didn't read this morning. There were special miracles of God. These are all signs of a revival. There are special miracles, verses 10 and 11. It says, This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jews and Greeks. Think about that. Everybody heard. Everybody heard the word of God. Some rejected it. Some accepted it. But countless people got saved because they heard of the Word of God. You know, there's many churches today. They have perfect organizations. Man, their organization looks great. They have beautiful facilities, beautiful churches. They have incredible education opportunities there. They have professional musicians. Yet the churches are pitifully ineffective. How is that? How can a church have all these things and be ineffective? I can tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit is not flowing to that church. I pray every week to stay out of the way of the Holy Spirit. I pray every week for you that the Holy Spirit will come and fill this place, that our lives will be changed beginning with your pastors. There's too many people, listen to this very carefully, there's too many churches that serve the people's needs but not God's purposes. Do you hear that? 
There's too many churches that are focused on people's needs but not on God's purposes. It's important to meet people's needs, 100%. I spend some of my time every week doing that, going to hospitals and making calls. and That's important. But the most important thing for the church is the mission, okay? That came out of my military background. The mission comes number one. It's always number one. It may cost people sometimes to accomplish this mission. But you need the people to accomplish the mission so they're just as quiet as can be to the number one mission. The mission and then the people. Take care of the people. Grow your people. Edify your people. Then we might see that. You know, sadly, my thought on that, a lot of churches don't realize that they don't have the power. They're not realizing it. They go to church. They go through the motions. But they're not seeing the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I've told you right up front. I've never seen a greater church. I've been on the staff, I mentioned that a minute ago, of a huge church. And sadly to say, I was there for about four years. Never saw a movement of God like I've seen in this church. I've never seen lives radically transformed in that church like I have in this church. God is at work here. He's at work all around us. I believe if we had time this morning, I'd have all those of you that stand up and come share your testimony about how God changed your life because of the outreach of somebody in this church came by to see you. Maybe you sit in this church. Maybe you're a Christian, but you came here and all of a sudden God awakened your faith. I've heard those stories over and over. I'm not bragging on me or the church. I'm bragging on God. That's what we're talking about here. God's word prevailed in Ephesus, and people's lives were changed. That's what church is supposed to be about. We don't want to see what Beaverdam Baptist Church can do. We want to see what God would do when we commit ourselves totally to him as a church. See God's power come down. The second sign of revival, look at verses 13 and 15. The false prophets were exposed. False prophecy today? Are there false prophets out here today? You think? Think about some of these false religions. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons come to mind. Let me ask you this. You think the Supreme Court of America is a false prophet? I think if you take the definition of false prophets directly, that uh, anybody that speaks against the Word of God proclaims it just like they did. He's a false prophet. There's people out there that have bought into this. They're no longer standing on the truth of God. They're standing on the truth of the Supreme Court. Are you kidding me? They're, they're standing on the, 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 the truth of media people, announcers on the radio or the TV, proponents of things that are contrary to words God, God's word. Can you recognize the real deal? Do false prophets want to make inroads into the Christian church? You bet. But it's for you and I to understand the truth of God's word so we can share the truth with them with love. Let them know what the truth says. It says there in verse 18 that many people were saved. I love what Billy Sunday used to say, great evangelist from the last generation. In fact, they put him up there in the category of Billy Graham as far as reaching millions of people. Billy Sunday said this. He says, hell is hot, heaven is sweet. Judgment is sure and Jesus saves. The message is that clear. It's just that clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came, he died upon that cross, he was buried for three days in the borrowed tomb, he rose on the third day, lives victorious in heaven today. That's the gospel message. That's what the world needs to hear. God's word is not going to return void. Another sign of revival. The strongholds of evil were destroyed. Look at verse 19. He said, also those 
Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them in a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. At that time, a piece of silver was equivalent to a man's daily wage. So what that 50,000 pieces of silver represented was 50,000 days of labor of men. That's how much money it was, 50,000 days. That's 137 years of one man working every day. That's a lot of money. But they burned those books up because they'd been convicted. Their sin and their strongholds were destroyed by the Word of God. Their sin was exposed. Their lives were broken. Their sins were confessed and people repented. They turned from their wicked ways. You might say, and some theologians have asked a question over the years too, why didn't they just sell those books and make money and give it to the poor? Well, you know what? God convicted them all the way. Why would we sell something that's evil and wicked to somebody else so they can kind of understand the wicked and evil thought? Witchcraft. Are there strongholds of evil in the church today? Unfortunately, yes. Those practicing magic. In the King James Version, it says those practicing curious acts. Curious acts is closer to the original translation here. And there's two places where that word is used. It's paragos is a Greek word for that, paragos. It means curious acts, but it also means busybodies. Imagine that. That one word, that one Greek word is used here in the scripture we just read, but it's also used in 1 Timothy 5.13, strongholds. It says this in 1 Timothy 5.13. It's talking about people that are struggling in their faith. And it says, besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, there's the word in Pergos, says nothing, it says saying things which they should not. If you study the word busybody or Pergos here, it means going beyond what is legitimate. It's doing things that are not legitimate. It means to meddle. In uh, the book of Acts here, it describes the work of magicians or sorcery, which is not godly either. It talks about that in the book of Deuteronomy. But it also talks about busybodies, going beyond what's legitimate and meddling here. Once again, 1 Timothy 5.13, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. You know, the pastor's typically the, one of the last ones to find out, but I don't know that we've got a big problem with that right now, but we have in the past. But I will tell you this, that's what destroys most Christian churches, is busybodies. It's people that get their eyes off the mission, which is edifying and encouraging and evangelism, and they set their affections this way. They set their thoughts this way. It's very easy to criticize somebody else. You know, you know who the biggest critics I see are? The biggest, biggest critics or the biggest gossips that I see in this world today that I've had the unfortunate experience to have to work with or help them out of their situation are ones that have the most problems. They have an incredible amount of problems. And I, that hurts and breaks my heart. But they feel that their problems aren't going to be as big or significant if they can point out somebody else's problems. What does the Bible say about somebody worried about somebody else's speck when they've got a log in their own eye? It, it comes from an inner demon. It comes from an inner essence of not being satisfied, and I want to hurt other people because that makes me feel not as bad about myself because I hurt too. It's a manifestation, I think, of hurt. It's a manifestation of not being spiritual where we need to be. It's huge, and those are one of the strongholds that come into the church. But you know when God showed up with Paul and, and Paul began preaching God's word, you know what happened? It broke down those strongholds. If you have a friend or know somebody that seems to like to meddle, seems to be a busybody a little bit, you know the best thing you can do for them? Have a Bible study with them. Pray with them. Stop right with that. And say, hey, let's pray. I can tell that really bothers you. Let's pray, let's pray for a second. Let's help them. 
I came across this a couple weeks ago, and I, I had to recall and had to go dig deep in my files to find it. But um, this is called the disease of criticism. And I want to read this to you. It says the church is made up of imperfect people. Well, we're talking about strongholds, unfortunately, that Satan gets in churches sometimes. I don't believe it's in our church at the moment. It's been here before. It has every tendency to come back. The church is made up of imperfect people. All of us have our faults. The amazing thing is that God has been able to work through imperfect Christians. He has never had a chance with any other kind. The Christian who becomes infected with criticism of others loses sight of the major cause. He gets engrossed in details and misses the supreme design. His eyes wandered from the crucified Christ to focus on the faults of those whom Christ died for. This causes his spiritual life to dry up. You know what we need as followers of Jesus Christ? We need Christians who overlook the faults of others as easily as they overlook their own faults. You hear that? Look at what happened here at Ephesus, verse 20. It says, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be about. It grew and it prevailed. What does it mean to prevail? It means that it became a church that was transforming society, transforming people's lives. The word of God always prevails. Listen to these three scriptures very quickly. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes, this is God speaking. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. God's word is never going to return void. God's word is powerful. I love Jeremiah 23, 29. It says this. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. God's word is powerful. God's word breaks down the gates of hell. God's word smashes chains and bodies that people find themselves in. God's word is like that fire. And finally, this comes out of Zechariah chapter 4. It says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. God desires to do an incredible work in our life. You may be sitting there, Dan, how can I kind of realize these things in my whole life, in my own life? And how can I realize these things in a greater way in my life? It begins with surrender. The difference between hell and heaven moves on the turnstile of surrender. As I surrender my life, you know what happens? God floods in. As I hold on to my life and hold on to the things of this world and hold on to the things that I think are important to me, God doesn't flow in the way he wants to. R.G. 3, a great pastor from the past, wrote this prescription for revival. I'm going to close with this today. Maybe some of these things are, would be a prescription for you, but I thought it was kind of profound thinking. And uh, this comes from R.G. 3. He's, say what? Did I say R.G. 3? Mm-hmm. There was a Freudian slip. Yeah. This is not RG3. In fact, who is RG3? He's he's gone. No, I appreciate that, Lee. Because RG Lee's prescription of revival, the very first point, applies to the pastor here. Says if all the sleeping folks will wake up, if all the lukewarm folks will fire up, if all the dishonest folks will confess up. If all the disgruntled folks will cheer up, if all the depressed folks will brighten up, if all the estranged folks will make up, if all the gossiping folks will shut up, 
if all the true soldiers will stand up, if all the dry bones will shake up, if all the Christian folks will pray up, then we'll have revival. I like that little thing, especially the sleeping part with RG3. I love you, every one of you. I don't know all of you as well as I know some of you. But I believe with all my heart that God does, wants to do something incredible here. He's already done it. I stand amazed at all the things he's done in the past. But I'm here to tell you, if God is my witness, that our best days are ahead, that God wants to do extraordinary things where every one of us puts our head on our pillow every night and says, wow, look what God did this day. Look what God did this week. Look what God used our church to do. And this body of believers, I believe, can turn this world right side up again. When we get serious about the things that God wants us to know, that we begin preaching and teaching the Word of God, begin standing on the Word, begin kind of maybe thinking about some of those things that uh, R.G. Lee just told us there as well, too. Some of the areas in my life that I need to improve upon. But I do love you, and I thank God for you, and what a privilege to serve alongside you. Let's pray.